we are in we are in a terrible position of social fragmentation, personal dislocation, and of course people are dying of drugs because they're 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 reaching out for anything they can find that will that will give them a, a manageable life, and uh, but still. We have the ghost of this whole idea. We want to blame it on the the demon drug that somehow grabs them by the willpower and 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 flips a switch and and they're 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 helpless after that. And and that myth is is killing us as scientists or as let's say as scholars who who want to try to understand what's really going on. And that's and that's what this this book of mine that uh, is about really is if we get past we have to get past we have to exorcise that ghost before we will ever really have a, 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 a good intellectual analysis of what addiction is about. Of course, addiction is a huge problem, but it's much bigger than a drug problem. Hello and welcome to the Happy Pair Party. That was a very formal intro, wasn't it? You did great, Dave. Anyway, yeah. I, put, I put on my podcast voice there. Are you going to put on your podcast voice now? Hello and welcome. No. Uh, welcome aboard on the Happy Pair Podcast Show. We're Featuring. a podcast show. <laughs> yeah, <for me. laughs> I like a show. Welcome to the train. What of makes talk a show? Is, is that when you have a certain amount of episodes? I don't know. Maybe a show. Maybe a show is that you're performing. Is that it? Because that hence um, the performing voice. Well, but it? we were trying to not have a podcast voice and just be more normal. Remember, so well, maybe, maybe we, we should just call it a show. Hello and welcome to the Not Happy Pair Show or the Happy Pair Not Show. The Not Show. Yeah. Uh -huh. or, anyway, this okay. is funny. Or okay. just monotone voice. We're Hello and happy. Welcome okay. to the Happy Pair Podcast. Okay. So what are we going to talk about Speaking of show, did you enjoy last night with? Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, can I tell you a story? No. Yeah, yeah, go for it. But <laughs> just yeah. for those who, are, who, don't who know, weren't there last night. Weren't there last night. Okay, last night, uh, our wonderful friend, uh, Sam Corlett, who is um, from Australia. We met him about three years ago, was it? Something like that. I think two, two and a half. Maybe. A lovely, kind, handsome Australian man on the beach one day. And uh, he, t he liked eating vegetables like us. And we started hanging out. And he said he was over shooting some show. And um, shooting a show means filming a TV show, just in case you're wondering. Shooting tin cans, <laughs> or in case you're wondering. <laughs> and uh, Sam has become a wonderful friend and he was filming or he was one of the lead characters on a new Netflix show called Vikings Valhalla. And Sam isn't back. He's back to shoot season three in a few weeks. And uh, we had a screening. We had our own little quote unquote premiere where we made well, we made we invited all our our Swimrise crew and kind of the community just to dress up as though it's a red carpet event. Shiv managed to find a red carpet and with these lights. flashing lights. Yeah. With it. We all put on tuxedos and our finest gear and we went and we had a viewing upstairs in the happy pair. And it was such fun and ever more sparkly gear like there was loads of sparkly dresses and black tuxedos and dicky bows and, and it was gas. But can I ask, there were so many of us there and like I was sitting with the kids who were up and down, running around me the whole time. Did you get to actually, did you follow it? Oh, I, I loved I've, it. I've watched I, it yeah. a few, I've watched and, it. And I'm already. such a, a sucker for anything like that. I'm like, don't distract me. I'm just sucked in it. This is incredible. I love the intensity. So what's your, yeah, what's your viewing etiquette like? Are you? I'm, I'm one of those real, Justina, so this is my wife, Justina, she goes <laughs> mental in that. When I'm watching a movie, like the world just stops. And if Justina asks me a question, I'm like, no, I'm watching a movie. Don't take me out of it. You know, this type of thing. I cannot. Like, we were chatting about that earlier. Yeah. <laughs> movie <laughs> etiquette. <laughs> movie <laughs> etiquette. Yeah, I find I get kind of like a little bit like cranky, you know, where yeah, it's like, I'm like and then I have to go, 
and count oh, yes, myself down and go, do you mind please just getting the, you know, and I'm, I'm ready to blow in and to put being very polite. Some people don't get it. Cause even like when I was watching Harold the other night, we ended up watching. Are you going to hang Harold? Are you going to hang Harold? Well, like, I, you know, you make a little comment when nobody's speaking, you know, eh? and you're like, Oh, like, well, look at that guy's hair or whatever. And he'll take that as let's get into a full blown conversation about it. And then I'm like, well, now they're talking and I can't hear what they're saying. And it's funny how some people like when you watch with them, they have no, I'm, to, it's viewing etiquette they yeah. don't have they just want to have a, a different one Justine is the same Justine could be watching a movie and having a chat and doing everything and I'm like shut up I know <laughs> and maybe we just take it more serious but you are the funniest person I've ever gone to the cinema with Stephen Flynn when we <laughs> when we went and see Bond I the two of us. stop laughing it's like there's no one else in the cinema and it's like you can communicate to the characters you're roaring you're shading you're like looking around like it's anyone else here we're, like that, we're like that annoying person that goes oh my god I loved it though because I was like oh wow okay he's really into it and it's so entertaining we're the person that like no one's laughing and I'm roaring laughing yeah. at that silly joke but you're yeah. totally immersed oh that's brilliant yeah sometimes I've watched movies in the cinema and I've kind of left uh, the movie ends and I go oh oh I'm this person still yeah. oh <laughs> well like why am I going out with the lads in the movie like, <laughs> like you know because genuinely I'm like I remember yeah I anyway. remember watching Avatar and just I think you me and you went to see it and we were running around the car park afterwards and this is age like 41 no it wasn't <laughs> no, no it wasn't <laughs> Avatar didn't come out 41 no that was 38 35 maybe or something. we were young men we were young so, so coming out of Valhalla Vikings did you feel like having a sword and going and oh, chopping I things just, even myself Theo came Jack we watch the next one please please please, please. and I was like yeah come on we just, just got mom, mom won't let us but come on <laughs> <laughs> yeah Theo's my eight year old okay shall we talk about the podcast oh yeah we can should. we talk about it I really enjoy talking about the movie so yeah me too uh, so, so did I but I think we like we're not we're not like this is the, the podcast of a movie. is also really 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 this good. one's cool okay so it's not often that you get to talk to an 83 year old man and like it's really not have an and have a podcast conversation but a podcast with one like it really isn't like this is you know and it yeah, felt very special yeah it really did so so bruce alexander he's a doctor of psychology that's been studying in the fields of addiction for the last 50 years and you might kind of go addiction i'm not a drug addict i'm not an alcoholic like what's addiction got to do with me but like he breaks it down really and kind of goes, so many of us in each of our lives have addictive behaviors and addictive habits. And whether it be addictive to pseudo gods is one thing that he said, or demigods or demigogs, I think was the word he used it. Like whether we're addicted to celebrity culture, whether we're addicted to vanity, whether we're addicted to phones, whether we're addicted to so, so many aspects. But really, he kind of gives a much greater context for addiction in terms of, as he says, uh, like so much of his lifetime has been based on a war on drugs and being based on a drug focused culture in terms of addiction and going it's the drugs problem it's the drug problem but he kind of really talks about his experiment which is called Rat Park which is phenomenal. amazing it's a phenomenal I love he, the way he called it it's my number one Yeah, I love he said it's his story. number one hit it's a fable <laughs> and he said it's really become a fable a because, cultural fable because it is such an easy narrative for people to get from it and it's such but a good but also it has that story arc of no one picked up on it at the start and they'd like hit this gold mine but nobody noticed and then years later everyone does it and gets it written boom, in these so, popular books so yeah. we're not even going to tell about it here in the intro we're just gonna like sprinkle we're sprinkling bits of rat cheese park, along here park, but quickly amazing. you were talking about there about his age and it's interesting because like yeah we're such an 
ageist society, aren't we? That we look, we, we, we don't, why aren't we talking to more people in their 80s or whatever who have way more life experience? Because he was so wise. Well, certainly at the very end, he gave some uh, absolute personal yeah. nuggets. There's a real frankness that you don't get. There's a real like He's got nothing like, to lose Yeah it's like I'm not I'm not trying to prove myself yeah. I, I'm not looking I like I the way he called for gold like, I I'm don't just, care about Social media And yeah. people's likes This is I, li- I like the way He called us cadets Well cadets <laughs> <laughs> I've never been called A cadet ever And I was like Oh yes Sergeant <laughs> We will be. take this mantle And we'll fix things <laughs> Yes sir no, anyway, Bruce Alexander, he was deadly, really rough. Wonderful okay. conversation. Um, deadly, I mean good. And not we, like... Before we go into the podcast, um, our, the book is still on pre-sale. Oh yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Insert queue of... The, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so our best book ever is coming out in June. It's called The Veg Box. The goal of the book is to make eating vegetables easier, more accessible. We use 10 ingredients, the 10 most common vegetables in Ireland, the UK, and most of the world. We cook them 10 ways with 10 ingredients or less. Think of your veg yeah. box. Everyone's getting veg box these days and what's left over and, and what, what to do what, with what the ingredients do I do with or what do I do with an aubergine what the hell is an aubergine and even can I give an example so say for a carrot you go ah oh, carrots like they're grand you know I make carrot soup or sometimes I like a boiled carrots woo carrots are mediocre well wait and we tell you what we do with <laughs> carrots are you ready for it carrot granola no way carrot flapjacks get out of town Carrot cupcakes! <laughs> wow! <laughs> She's a great time. I'm just kind of enjoying myself. <laughs> <laughs> our new book, Book Six, is available to pre-order. If you've listened to our podcast a number of times and goes, "Oh my god, I really want to support those guys," but I don't know how. By pre-ordering our book, it really does help. It gets the book out there more in different, more availability, encourages people to eat more veg, and also helps reduce waste because that's one of the under- yeah. So beyond supporting issues. you guys, is supporting the environment. I love oh, that yeah. connection. There you okay, go. good one there. Anyway, nice. we'll put a link down below to pre-order. <laughs> if you go on the in, this thing called the internet and ju- just type in the happy pair, the veg box pre-order, it'll probably come up. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, without further ado, and thanks for listening to our intro. I really enjoyed this. No, I really did. Hope, I hope you enjoyed it too. And let us know on, on social media. We love getting a bit of feedback. Yeah. And do you like Only good intros? feedback. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Only good feedback. Yeah, the bad stuff. Keep to yourself. Our our vanity. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. But without further ado, we give you the wonderful Bru- Doctor of Psychology Bruce Alexander. All the way from Canada. BC in Canada. Yeah, right. We're going to stop talking. Bye. Enjoy the show. Bye. 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 bye, bye. Uh, well this is great Thanks a million for joining us really We really, we really are I've, We've had so much fun Reading about you And researching about you And digging into All sorts of things So yeah I'm, Thank you I'm grateful Welcome But also I mean I'm I'm getting the idea That you guys are doing Quite a bit On the addiction area You've had some Pretty interesting people In there I've... Yeah Yeah Really have yeah, we've definitely, like, I guess over the last, there's so many, like addiction covers so many aspects of life, I guess. Like, it's certainly not limited to, to uh, like, abuse of substances or whatever. Like, it comes back to every single person's life and each of our behaviors. And some of our, you know, some of them tend to be life affirming, you know, maybe it's exercise, things like this, and some of them much less so. Well, now that you've said that, I don't know what else there's left for me to say. I agree with all of that. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, that was a great chat, Bruce. Thanks a million. <laughs> that was well, a joke. Thank you for summing it up so well. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's loads of things. And, and even I was just going for a little walk there and I was thinking back. So we were born in Calgary. So Calgary, Alberta. Um, our parents, our parents moved there when we were, they moved there and then we were born there and then they had both of us and then they knew they had to come home for help. So they retreated back to Ireland. <laughs> but 
But 20 years ago, we went there for a summer and we spent a summer in Calgary. And I remember walking around the streets there and there was loads of Native American people that were, that tended to be alcoholics on the side of the street. And I remember kind of going, I remember asking a friend who was from Canada, like, what's the story? Like, why are there, like, why does it seem like there's so many Native American? And he, his, his response to me, he said, um, well, they tend to have a, a gene that makes them addicted to substances or something. And, and that was his kind of understanding of it. And I think, uh, and he blamed the gene and then blamed the substances and whatnot. And that was just the, the cultural norm about addiction. Whereas like your view on that addiction is not necessarily about the individual, it's about society at large is just such a holistic and a much more challenging view on addiction. And I'm fascinated. I think it's such an important message and let's please talk about it. Well, you know, this, this is our perennial problem. There you were in Calgary at just the right time to make that observation. You could have made that observation in pretty much any city in Canada. And you would have seen the, the drunken Indians, as we called them. <clears throat> and you could have asked anybody and you would have got approximately that same response. Uh, people would say, well, you know, they just can't handle alcohol. And, and that means there's a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. And we have believed that for uh, 100 years. And that has been one of the most destructive things we could possibly believe. Because, of course, it, 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 that isn't true. And, and one of the things I could do, if you're interested, is I've, I, you know, I could just go through all the data that, I mean, by data, I mean um, anthropological data, which, which is quite adequate to show that that belief is totally false. And it's just now that we're finally overcoming that belief and getting around to say, well, you know, what can actually be done about the fact that we still, 20 years after you were there, we still have that problem of, of the guys staggering around and, and everybody's saying, oh, well, watch out, chief. And, you know, they're, they're, they're Indians. And, and they're still stuck with that, with that old myth. And it seems like it's not just to the, to the Native American Indians in Canada. It seems to be globally. It's towards kind of this this notion of war on drugs that it's the drugs that are the problem not not it, there's no real sense of as a society that we're creating disenfranchised people that feel dislocated they feel separate from a sense of meaning and purpose and that the drugs are the the antidote or they're the, they're the poor solution yeah i mean that's that's the alternative way to th to see it and that's that way of seeing it that that really it's it's the dislocation of people that is that is creating this immense problem. That's the alternative way. And that way is making some progress. But the ghost of the old belief, I, I think of it as a ghost. I, I think of it as the it's the ghost of the demon drugs and it floats around. And so when we, you know, when we see the the native guy walking down the street staggering and, and reeking, what do we say? You know, the ghost appears and we say, oh, he, those guys just can't handle alcohol. And uh, when we see Purdue Pharma, now you, you would, uh, everyone knows, I think, about Purdue Pharma. These are the guys who were selling OxyContin um, at, in huge quantities in the United States and Canada, and I, I suspect Ireland, so that, so that we have a huge overdose problem now. Um, of, of overdose death we still have it and it's and and we blame it all on these 
these um, these wicked people at, at the pharmacy, Big Pharma, Purdue Pharma is the name of the company. We blame it on them. And we say, well, of course, we've got this all these people dying of overdoses because they were selling the addictive drug. Now, I say Purdue Pharma is getting exactly what they deserve. I mean, they were marketing drugs in a way which is unconscionable, and they should all go to jail, and they should all rot in jail as far as I'm concerned. But the reason that all those people are dying of overdoses is not that the drug they were selling is irresistible, is that it is that that we are in a time of, of terrible social and, and uh, political fragmentation. I'm, I'm looking you know, at the United States when I say that. By the way, the United States is just down, down the road and across the water to my right. Um, so, you know, we are, in, we are in a terrible position of social fragmentation, personal dislocation. And of course, people are dying of drugs because they're 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 reaching out for anything they can find that will that will give them a, a manageable life. And uh, but still, we have the ghost of this whole idea. We, we want to blame it on the the demon drug that somehow grabs them by the willpower and 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 flips a switch and and they're 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 helpless after that. And and that myth is is killing us as scientists or as let's say as scholars yeah. who who want to try to understand what's really going on and that's yeah. and that's what this this book of mine that uh is about really is yeah. if we get past yeah. we have to get past we have to exorcise that ghost before we will ever really have a a a, a good intellectual analysis of what addiction is about and what you guys are saying um seems to me exactly right on i mean this is this is the new thinking and the new thinking is is evident in what you're saying and and i hooray for you it makes me feel so happy but i know <laughs> that as soon as i as soon as i go to my if i go to vancouver and walk downtown and see that that drunken indian coming down the sidewalk somebody's going to whisper in my ear oh that those guys just can't handle alcohol can I ask a question there? And this, this is, this is, it just, the, the thought just came to me there with what you were saying that, um, like, say, for example, you're t taking two people who are, you know, they're, they're socially integrated and they have, they do meaningful, they've really reasonably meaningful lives. If you gave them a choice of sugar versus heroin or cocaine, are they all kind of similar enough in terms of their actual addictive properties, like sugar versus nicotine versus alcohol versus cocaine versus heroin? You know, like if you're talking about someone who's, you know, reasonably fulfilled in their day-to-day -day lives that is less susceptible to addiction, according to what we were just speaking, like is the substance almost secondary to the, to the person's level of integration and meaning and fulfillment? Let's say a person isn't, as you've described, Let's say they're they're screwed up and they really don't have a life and they're looking for something to grab onto as an alternative, something that will keep them afloat. They're, they're more likely to turn to, uh, let's say, heroin or fentanyl than they are to turn to carrots or turnips. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the reason for that is that is that these things are heavily advertised, heroin and fentanyl. We don't it's not commercial advertising. But it's on the media all the time. These are the drugs that will give you a high like you wouldn't believe. Man, if you got you got 
shit for a life. Well, try the try try some of this because it'll give you a high you just you just can't believe. So of course people are going to people who are need needy who need something to to achieve some kind of fulfillment or some kind of purpose in their life are going to more likely reach out for for heroin or fentanyl because it's so so well advertised and because it and it will do the the job very well but just to finish this the, the sentence that you know um they could just as well reach out for carrots because um you know and some guys do you know i i know well do i know guys who are obese vegetarians who who um sure sure you can you can i think you can get addicted to pretty much anything if you if it's construed in a way that 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 makes sense to a drowning person let's say then they they grab onto it a, a drowning person will grab any piece of junk they can right and, yeah, and sorry for interrupting i just wanted to no 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 that was great my question was really about i think i had read like because obviously like and i really do want to hear hear you tell the story of rat park because i think that's amazing but even even just before that, I was kind of uh, like I'd heard ideas before that when they put, I don't know if it was mice or it was rats or some kind of rodent in a cage and that they found that when they gave him sugar water versus cocaine, I think the the rodent went more for the sugar water than that actually the cocaine or the, you know, the, the more what's more perceived as the harder drug, you know, the way we would perceive heroin or cocaine or any of these has been much more addictive, but the rat went for the sugar water much more. And I was just wondering in terms of the addictive properties, like, you know, sugar, is that? Absolutely. No, you, I'm, you're right. For rats, you know, a, a rat is, as you just exactly as you've said, the rat in the, the cage, this is an isolated rat, right? This is a rat that's suffering and they're, they, they'll choose the sugar. Sure. Uh, and this is, this is demonstrated experimentally. Now imagine it's a person, and they're and they're in solitary confinement, or they're in a concentration camp, or or they're in uh, just a hell of of isolation. Are they going to reach for the for the cocaine or the sugar? Well, they're going to reach for the cocaine, not because it cocaine works differently on them, but because it's advertised. You know, they 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 have been told for decades. That this cocaine has got is man, this stuff. You take this and 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 you're you're going to the moon. Uh, they've heard they've heard that advertising. So so yeah, we are. You know, we're we we're surrounded by people who are more likely to get addicted to drugs. But it's not because the drugs are more addicting. It's 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 a cultural thing. Um, does that answer you? Yeah, I have never, I, I never, heard, I, I never even thought of. I never even thought it from the idea that uh, like advertise because you don't really think that like, you know, the way we've all heard about oh hard drugs and soft drugs and like that's been a almost like a cultural messaging. And, as and even saying. when you say the word advertise, I'm thinking like I've never seen that advertised on like media outlets on the television. I'm going to think about media. media. It's like subversively, it's in movies, it's in all sorts of in our society Absolutely. at large when you yes. use the word advertisement. Yeah, very so it's it's un undercurrent, undercurrent narrative. Hard drugs will take you higher. Yeah, and that's right. I love your word, subversive. It's a subversive kind of advertising, and we don't even know we're doing it. And we do, we do it to our kids. You know, we say we say to our children, "Well, you know, if you t if you take some of that on the street, 
you'll have this incredible high and you'll never get over it. You'll want that for the rest of your life. Well, what are we telling them? There's an incredible high. You know, they just don't have to be snotty nosed kids sitting in a in a classroom listening to this bullshit. They can <laughs> they could go out on the street and 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 you know they could they could jump over the moon. And it's and we're teaching them that. So so the whole approach has been, you know, uh, has just gone wrong. It's it's unfortunate. It's nobody's fault. Nobody's trying to do this. But we've fallen into a cultural trap with addiction. And to go back to what you said, um, David, right at the start. Very good. Um, <laughs> to go back to that, of course, addiction is a huge problem. But it's much bigger than a drug problem. And, and I think one of the really interesting things to ask yourself now is what is the most dangerous addiction in the 21st century? And, and uh, you could do it. You know, you could actually ask yourself this question. Technology? What is the most? Technology. Well, I'm going to go with vanity, self-vanity. I, I, I think those are both. <laughs> both what would you what would your answer be what would your answer be what do you think is the most dangerous addiction well my answer you know could easily be one of yours because they're, they're perfectly good but my answer would be the um addictive devotion to demagogues so that you know we have a we have a century well you know again i'm looking to my right to the united states just across the water there They've got millions of people who are in love and fanatically devoted to Donald Trump. And there's echoes in that for me of the millions of people who were fanatically devoted to Adolf Hitler um, in the year I was born. I was born in 1939, <laughs> if you could believe that. Um, you certainly don't look amazing. You certainly don't look amazing, genuinely. Now let's see. This is the media for you. All this, all this uh, <laughs> vanity <laughs> service. Thank you very much. Um, but, <laughs> now, but think about that. Think about the way. And I don't know how much you know this history. You know how much you've studied it in detail. Of course, we all know it. But like people loved Hitler. They loved him to pieces. They loved him to the point that. When, when he committed suicide, um, Joseph Goebbels and his wife decided they had to commit suicide. So they took pills and they poisoned their six children. So they died on the spot and then they poisoned themselves. That's how much they were addicted to Hitler. And, and I talk to people who are that addicted to Donald Trump. Now, I don't know if they poisoned all six children, we don't have six children anymore, but they are, they are so, they're, 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 I'm, I know a man right now is my neighbor. I hope he's not listening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise he's going to come get you. <laughs> no, no, he's a nice guy. I, I really like him. He's, maybe he's, a a you, maybe he's 90 and you're 83 and you can outrun him. <laughs> No, he's 60. Catch me in a minute. Um, <laughs> but he, I mean, he would die for Donald Trump. 
he would and and now he's a Canadian, but he would die for Donald Trump. So my nomination for the worst addiction is is that addiction to demagogues, and we see it maybe in in Hungary or we see it in Eastern Europe. I don't know. Fortunately, I don't think we see it in Russia. I don't and by, think. And by demigods, you kind of mean like political leaders or celebrities or this idea of people that are far and beyond each of our own station. These are demigods, as you said. Exactly. Yeah, you know, and we can think of it in terms of of spiritual cults, where you know people give all their money to the spiritual cults, and then the leader moves away, and and there are all the people left behind, but they still love him. Oh, they love him so much, and and is that not addiction? I mean, I think you have to ask yourself: in what way is that not addiction? I guess it's because obsession, it is. A, which is same kind of thing it's just a different word for the same behavior it it is um it, it's it's giving yourself over to somebody to somebody or something this is what you do if you're if you're taking heroin you're giving yourself over to not only the drug but the drug culture and this is what you do if you're if you join the political culture this these kinds of addictive political cultures, which surround these crazy people, where there is no reason, you know, I mean, people are not talking rational analyses of historical situations leading to coherent policies. That's not what's going on. They're talking about, we must have power because those other guys are commies and, or whatever, whatever words we're using. Does that make sense to you? I mean, yeah, I no, think no, we're I talking, I tell, I think yeah, we're yeah. talking about it. In the broadest sense now, but also in the most dangerous sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think it's, it's a different lens on it. I wonder, Bruce, if you'd like, I'm sure you've told this a million times, but I just think it's such an incredible new lens to, to look at that really is a great metaphor for the topic of addiction. I wonder if you could tell, just talk about your experiments and your team's experiment with Rat Park, because it just, I, I've heard it a lot of times, like in research with this, and I just think it's such an incredible piece of research that really re it's a great you know example of what we've talked about you know it really is well sure let me, let me tell you the story just in, in in a brief way uh i i of course love to tell the story this is my hit single right <laughs> <laughs> and it's got a great tagline like rat park you kind of makes you go oh, it's a good single rat park like and everyone kind of has these ideas of what it might look like so it happened because, because I, I had the incredible good luck to be assigned to the first methadone program in Canada. I was a young psychologist. I was 30. It was 1970. Um, and and I, I was really young. I was, I was 30. And, and um, they were having this problem, which was the old junkies would come in and they'd take their methadone and they wouldn't take heroin afterwards, most of them. Um, and, and the program was serving its purpose. It was getting people off the needle and it was getting the pushers, you know, taking the business away from the pushers. It was serving its, but the young people, the young junkies would come in and they'd, uh, they'd take the methadone, then they'd go outside um, steal something at the store, sell it, buy some heroin, and shoot it up. Shoot up the heroin right on top of the 
the methadone. So they would they'd have it both ways. They'd they'd get the relief from the methadone and then they'd get a super high because they were already full of opioids, opioids from the methadone. And then so uh, my job as a young psychologist was to talk to these young junkies and tell them they shouldn't do that. I, I had to convey to them my my vast experience from graduate school where I learned everything about addiction <laughs> and uh, <laughs> tell them that they were on a very bad path there. But the oddity of the situation was that I had no power over them. I could not throw them off the program. Um, I couldn't send them to jail. I couldn't testify against them in the courtroom. That's just the way the thing was was structured. So the, the incredible good luck here is because I had no power over them, they were free to tell me the truth. And the truth for them was I was a fucking idiot. And uh, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't know what, what I was talking about. And that and that they um they had found something really important in life, which was the, the junkie culture. And they were addicted to, I would say, the junkie culture more than than the heroin. And what they loved to do, and they would tell me all about it. You know, we go out and we there are certain stores where you can get in there and you can seal a whole whole armload of stuff. And and if the cops get you, you're going to jail. Um, and if the cops find you with heroin, they're going to search you in the most brutal way. You you can't imagine what happened in those days. They they would search people by pumping them, punching them in the stomach until they vomited because they might have swallowed the evidence. You know. Um, so they would tell me about the adventurous life they were leading. How they were avoiding these cops and they were avoiding the junk, the uh, pushers they owed money to. And they were stealing stuff and they were hanging around and they were trying every kind of drug. They weren't just using heroin. They were trying every kind of drug. And they were listening to great, great um, rock and roll music of the 1970s. Fantastic music. And and they're they're telling me all this stuff. And they're. They're telling me about their addiction. They're telling me why the addiction works for them. And, and I could see, you know, I'm reading between the lines. I could see, you know, that that addiction could work for them because they had nothing else. And they would also told me this. Well, you know, we dropped out of school. I dropped out of school when I was in grade nine. I couldn't, couldn't stand it, man. It was just all that stuff. I, I, I couldn't stand that. Um, and people didn't like me, you know, because I wasn't like them. I wasn't a square John was the word they used, a square John. That was me, too. I'm a square John. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they had an incredible uh, void in their lives, which they filled by joining the junkie culture. So I went and I told my students to about this at the university. And, and um, some of the students thought this was great. Let's pursue this. This is really interesting. Some of the students thought I was being deceived. Here I was a young psychologist. These guys were telling me this story, but they knew that there was, none of that mattered. All that mattered was that these guys had taken the addictive drug and they were addicted. And um, all the rest was just they were bragging and they were they were putting me on because I was a young psychologist who was willing to listen to this stuff. That's what they told me. And um, and one guy, I remember one student who, who I will be thankful to forever 
jumped up in the back row and said, haven't you heard about the rats? And, <laughs> and I, of course, I had heard about the rats. The rats were the rats in, in these little Skinner boxes that had been shown, it had been shown that, that these rats, if you give them, if you inject them with heroin through a vein, through a uh, tube, which is implanted in their, their vein, if you inject them with heroin, every time they press the little lever on the wall, they'll take a lot of heroin and they'll just keep on taking it. And some of them will keep on taking it and actually uh, uh, <clears throat> not exactly overdose, but starve to death. This, this actually occurred. And this 1970, this was huge news. Here's the proof. <clears throat> this drug is addictive, not just to human beings. This drug is addictive to all of God's creatures, including the lowly rat. And, and here's the proof. We can prove it. And uh, therefore, we must have a war on drugs and all the rest. Well, um, you can see the flaw in the argument now, but it wasn't so easy to see the flaw in the argument then. So, so I, we had a little research group uh, combined, yeah, little research group, several people. Um, and we thought, well, they, you know, this isn't right because those, those little boxes that they've got, those, those rats live their entire life in those little boxes. And of course they take the heroin because they're, they're, uh, they're in solitary confinement and, and rats you need to know are, are highly gregarious creatures. They are very gregarious. They're, the species is Rattus norvegicus. And they're, they're just like other Norwegians. They, you know, they, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they love to be social. And um, so, so the idea is, well, let's build a, let's build a place where these laboratory rats can, can have a real social life. And let's compare them with rats that are in these little boxes. And let's see if there's any difference in how much heroin they, they will drink. And the the rest of the story you you know you know we we did make the rat park which first somehow we had this beautiful name for it and um we made it photogenic we we painted trees on the wall and and all kinds of stuff so just so that it would look to us as we hoped it looked to the rats like a sylvan paradise and we put the we put them in there, and sure enough, they 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 start. Rats are are truly um, gregarious creatures, and they're they're also very sexual creatures. They immediately start pairing up and and um, producing babies, and and pretty soon we have a thriving colony. And all the while, we're measuring how much heroin is being. Sorry, it wasn't heroin. We had to use morphine because we weren't allowed to use heroin. How much morphine solution is being consumed uh, compared to um, water, just plain water. And so we compare in both of our groups and we find over and over again in several experiments that the rats in the cages voluntarily consume quite a bit of morphine, quite a bit, about in some, in the extreme case, about 16 times as much morphine as the rats in Rat Park. And so, so we say, aha, here's the proof that that old story about the addictive drug is, is wrong. 
and we publish it in, in very good scientific psychopharmacology journals. We publish it in very good journals and it sinks like a stone. Nobody cares. Um, so it sinks like a stone because we're in the middle of a drug war. You know, when you're in the middle of a war, you don't want to hear somebody saying that 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 the um, the justifications for the war are questionable. And we were saying that the justification for the drug war, the main justification, which is that this drug is an irresistibly addictive substance, is not true. Well, if you say that in the middle of a war, you you sink like a stone. Nobody nobody wants to hear that. And and so. Uh, of course, there were a few people who were willing to hear it. And uh, eventually, when that war against opioids ended and we moved on to, to cocaine and, and methamphetamine and stuff like that, or, or other wars, um, eventually that story could be told. And, and several people published it in popular books that were, that were read. Now, this is not my domain like i'm a laboratory person right but all of a sudden this this story is being told in in popular books and all of a sudden it it acquires a kind of a it becomes a kind of a fable so people tell it in a very simplified way and sometimes they confuse the details and it isn't exactly right but but the basic story is that the you know is right basic story is that that rats in something like a normal environment don't have any interest in these supposedly irresistible and, and addictive drugs. They, they're not going to do it. Um, wow. I love the story. I love, I love hearing it from you. Who's who, who's who, who, who did this. It's phenomenal. Cause I, I, I've similarly, I've heard a number of fables of it, but it's amazing to hear it from, from the, from the horse's mouth. <laughs> from the yeah um, thank you and but i didn't mean to yeah, call you a horse like <laughs> if you're a horse you're a stallion like you're a stallion of a horse <laughs> so athletic oh you guys are really into the vanity thing thank you very very much <laughs> um, <laughs> i'm already so, having fun but but the yeah but the fable i mean so here i am the scientist and I'm saying, you know, my experiment, my beautiful experiment has been turned into a fable. Should I complain? And I say, hell no, I don't complain because the fable does work. And you can you can communicate ideas um, as fables that that are really, really important ideas. And, and somehow this one experiment has acquired that kind of a status. It's a. Uh, I mean, Aesop knew this, right? You could, you can, you can get truths across to large numbers of people by making them into fables, and this is what's happened with Rat Park, and I'm, I'm very happy. And the, and the main, like, say, say, like, say, can I say something? Yeah, sorry, the main, yeah. like, you know, the way in a fable, there's usually like a two-line takeaway from it, and the main line that I get from it is that, like, you know, the drug is not the problem; it's the environment. That when you, for example, if you liken this to humans who are listening to this story, because I don't know how many rats would understand it, it's that, like, you know, if you have a f happy, fulfilled human that's doing living a life with a certain amount of purpose in it, they're going to be much less susceptible to drugs or addictive behaviors. And that seemed to be the, the kind of core message within it. 
that that's the core message. And I have spent um, the rest of my career after Rat Park got closed down. Um, I've I spent the rest of my career exploring the human human history, really, and human anthropology. Um, and and it is absolutely true of human beings. Only it's harder to demonstrate in a simple way. You can't get a a bunch of human beings and put them in a, a rat park and a, and a bunch of others in, in, in solitary confinement. You can't do that experiment, but that experiment has been done hundreds of times. I mean, you were, you were talking about Canadian Indians before when you, from your Calgary experience, that's exactly what was done to the Canadian Indians. Well, not exactly, but something very similar. The Canadian Indians who had these incredibly complex tribal groups and incredibly complex economies, um, you know, hunting, fishing, and trading, and and um, coordinating it all within within spiritual systems, incredibly complex lives were put into little reserves, little villages. And all of the complexity of their lives was taken away from them. They were taken out of Rat Park, you could say. And they, they weren't put, they weren't housed individually, but it was, in a way, it was, it was just as, as serious. They were, they were housed in, in families, right? Family houses. But their, their village structure was gone. They no longer had a chief that they could trust. They no longer had... Um, medicine men who they could look to for spiritual insight. They no longer had holy plants that they would harvest from and, and bring back. They no, no longer had ceremonies like potlatches where they could exchange things. All that was gone. All that they were they were as close to being in solitary confinement as you could be. And and then what happened? Well, as you know, you know what happened. They we. We had this enormous epidemic of alcoholism, uh, enormous epidemic. And why did it happen? Well, we said because they're genetically susceptible. But of course, that isn't the reason. The, I, I think I think the Rat Park logic makes it much clearer what the actual reason is. And I think we we generally know that now, except when the the ghost of the old myth reappears and that. and it seems to be the same with kind of other indigenous groups like when you say it i think of australia and the kind of indigenous people there the aborigines often they're kind of you know the similar type experience disenfranchised, dislocated. yeah dislocated disenfranchised and therefore alcoholism or other things is 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 quite common as well i think sorry steve you had a question no i, I, I was going to just talk in a recent book you spoke about poverty of spirit and i think that's such an incredible phrase that brings so much meaning and it's something that we don't think of. we always tend to measure poverty in economic sense but we seldom actually try to qualitatively quantify which sounds ironic uh you know in terms of our spirit our sense of purpose our sense of meaning our sense of connection to to nature, to some sort of deity, whatever it is, but that sense of meaning. And I wonder if you could talk about poverty of spirit, because I think that's just an incredible phrase, and I love it. Yeah, well, I, this is wonderful. You guys have, have read my stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, poverty of the spirit. I, I'm, not, I'm not a Christian, but you know, you know, the phrase comes from Jesus. 
and it comes from the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit because we have a red park for them. We have a kingdom of heaven for them. Um, and and he's, he's just being merciful. And, and I, I think we see poverty of the spirit everywhere. Um, it's, it's, um, it's the tragedy of our times. And, the, and, the, and in the rich countries like yours and mine, perhaps, well, we see the poverty, we see that the poverty of the spirit is not in any sense restricted to the poverty of the bank account because we see it in the in the affluent people and we see it even in the rich people and we see a lot of it in the rich people and and what we see is that the somehow the the hidden side effect of the modern world is that it separates us from the kinds of roots and the kinds of connections which have always for ever in the human species been the basis of our of our existence it separates us from those and puts us into our separate little um, kitchens or or sewing rooms or whatever it is um puts us into our separate little rooms communicating as best we can across the the airwaves what we are separated in a way that that human beings never were before the modern age and we haven't solved this problem yet in fact we spend an awful lot of time denying that this is the problem we say oh uh, well never mind that of course that's that's a bit of a problem but the real problem is the addictive drug well i mean i think we're now at the point where we can turn that around and say no no never mind the addictive problem that's a little bit of a problem but the real problem is the poverty of the spirit and how will we deal with it? Well, we don't know yet. Well, it's a massive, it's such a massive, all-encompassing kind of like, it's it's question. a root, it's the root cause of how our modern culture is set up, really. So that's why it's a lot easier to kind of blame it on a single aspect, like, oh, it's the drugs, rather than going, well, it's our whole system and our whole structure. And it's how it's modern capitalism and competition and all these various structures, like I can understand how it's become what it has, really. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's nobody's at fault here. It's just it's just a cultural evolution that that was impossible to predict and is totally unprecedented. We have never been in the modern age before, but now we are, <laughs> and, yeah, well, we don't know and we may not get out of it alive. I wonder, we, we spoke with this cool guy, Bruce Parry. He was, he's, I don't know, what would I reduce Bruce Parry? I, he calls himself it, an adventurer. An adventurer. I find it hard reducing people to one word. He's a multifaceted human. However, to put him in one word, he's an adventurer. He lived with a lot of indigenous tribes and he kind of researched indigenous tribes and how they lived. And he met this group in uh, Panang, Borneo, Borneo, the Panam tribe. And they were like uh, no sorry, other tribe. Where was the group? Where was it the was, group? It was in Borneo. So out in Indonesia, it was the Panam tribe and they were unlike any other, other tribe he'd ever met before because it was a fully egalitarian society. There was no leader. There was no one above. It was fully dignified. Everyone was equal and everyone kind of, you know, shared. There was less sense of ownership. And the more he looked into it, the more he kind of 
came to the realization that approximately 95% of human civilization, we've lived in this kind of egalitarian manner. And it's only in recent modern evolution of humanity's way of living where we're kind of agricultural um, production made us settle, made us store things as we store things. Suddenly then we wanted to guard it and suddenly it became a lot more separate and more fragmented. And I wonder, does this, what I'm saying, have any ability to explain this recent um, dislocation, disenfranchisement, this poverty of spirit. Good effort, Steve. Thanks, I was well trying. Well done. I got a bit right. muddled at the end. Yeah, you got a little bit muddled, but it was, it was a good effort. It was like, you're having a punt at it. <laughs> I am. Having a swipe at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's perfect. What you have said is is absolutely correct as far as I'm concerned, With but there's a reservation. No, but, great. No, let's hear it. <laughs> well, first let me say that of course these Aboriginal tribes in their in their native undisturbed state had basically no problem with addiction. I mean, they have lots of other problems. These are not noble savages. They have all kinds of problems. But addiction problems come when you take that tribe and you break down this system that you're describing. So, and this has been demonstrated literally thousands of times all over the world in the colonial era, that is in the last three centuries, let's say, we have broken down tribe after tribe after tribe, and the result is addiction, as well as family dysfunction, criminality, depression, all this stuff. It's This experiment cannot be doubted because it has been done so many times but the res- here's the reservation. Um, a lot of these native tribes are egalitarian, but they're not all. Um, and and um, anthropologists and archaeologists point out that that the key to to being part of a functioning social unit is probably not equality. Equality, of course, is is it you know works. It's a good thing, um, but some of these tribes are highly structured, and some of them, for example, are highly gendered, um, and some of them are are um, some of them have uh, at least for part of the year they have absolute authoritarian leadership, especially during war, and sometimes during harvesting season. So I think it's. It's true, yes, on the one hand, that 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 um, Aboriginal tribes really have escaped the problem of addiction because of the the social integration that that is so evident to you know so obvious and evident. But it's not necessarily true that it hangs on equality. And I think I think we we're we're at a point now where we're kind of making a fetish of 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 equality. I fear this. Like, for example, um, you know, every society is gendered, and and which means that males do some things and females do other things, and the, and the males have some kinds of power and the females have some kind of power. This is this is part of human human culture everywhere. But we could say, well, you know, there's something inherently unequal about that, and we could break down gender. 
And we can say, well, everyone, every child gets to choose whether they're a, a male or a cis or a trans or a, or a whatever, you know, they get to choose from not just two genders, they get to choose from, from 98 genders. And um, I, I fear, now th that may turn out well, this is, this era of gender experimentation is very important and it's not, nothing evil is going on here, but I think we may find eventually that, that, that some kinds of structure which are not exactly egalitarian um, are important, and that and that they enable us to function as as societies, as as is the case of many Aboriginal, but not all Aboriginal societies, need some kinds of inequalitarianism, if you will, some kind of inequality um, to to function well, and and so I. I I, for one, would not put the primary emphasis on, on equality. I'd put the primary interest emphasis on belonging, on, on the fact that people have a place and they're, they're welcomed and that they, they belong to the other people and they know that perfectly well. And, and I would that's just where I would put the emphasis. Totally that's, agree. That's a, great, that's a great one. I love that. It's a great comeback. Uh, I'm wondering, like, so so what are, like, obviously, like, after Rat Parks, that was 50 years ago. So you've had 50 years, kind of, like, a lot of the world is only coming to coming up to speed in recent years that, okay, addiction is possibly an environmental or a societal issue and not necessarily a drug issue or a, or a behavior issue. Like, what are kind of, like, in terms of, of healing the greater society or the environment like over the last 50 years what have you come across of how do we better live our lives or how do we better set up things for our children or our families or our communities or our towns that like what are examples which you found where there's been less in instance of addiction or there's been more sense of belonging as you're saying or more sense of these these values that don't enable addiction I, I would go back to where we started, to the Aboriginal example. I mean, we, we in Canada have committed terrible crimes against these Aboriginal people, um, and we have seen the results. And now we are working slowly, gradually, and imperfectly to undo these, these crimes. And so we've, and we, and we, we sometimes undo them in, in very simplistic ways, like, there's an example of uh, the Canadian government spending $150 million to take um, a tribal group where everybody was addicted out of their village and put them in a whole new village <clears throat> and make sure that everybody had a pickup truck and everybody had a widescreen television in the new, new village. They, they really ab abolished the poverty problem and it didn't have any impact at all on the addiction problem. So that was that was a, a mistaken attempt, and and we have learned from that. On the other hand, we're doing a lot of of interventions, which I call cultural fusion, where uh, people, non-native people, go into native villages and help them. Um, well. In, provide. Let's say first provide the infrastructure for restoring the old culture. In other words, provide the kind of schools where people can go and, and learn the native language. 
um, and restore the old trails so that people, I'm thinking of a specific tribal group when I say this, restore the old trails so that people can take their spiritual journeys as, as they used to. Um, and not only restore, help to restore the past, but to introduce useful things in the future. Now, in the particular tribal group I'm thinking of, not only did they restore the old paths that people walked for spiritual journey, journeys, they established a really strong karate club so that the young men could, could um, you know, fight in symbolic ways because young men need to fight in symbolic ways because they're young men. Um, and now the, this karate club is not based on Aboriginal karate. It's based on Korean karate. So, so, so what they're doing here is restoring culture. It's not that they're only restoring the Aboriginal culture, but they're restoring culture as needed. And that's how culture is. You know, culture is a fu functional thing. And it, it doesn't really matter whether it's, it comes from the ancestors or it, or it comes from, from, from South Korea, it doesn't matter uh, as long as it's going to function. And that's, but I'm talking now about a, a project, which has, let's say, begun in Canada in the last 50 years and is nowhere near success, but where it, where it succeeds to some extent we see the results in terms of alcoholism and drug addiction and all the other things that native people are addicted to. Um, so, so I think we know something. We know, we know that culture has to be made functional and that it can be, and that, that once it's broken, it's not necessarily broken forever, but it's, it's going to change when it, when it comes back, it's not going to be exactly what it was, even though it's going to have elements of what it was. These are things we are learning, and 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 you can see the results clearly. You know, in in contemporary Canadian um, data, you know, it's it's happening. Now, how are we going to do that project on seven-year-old child children who spend their life locked up in their room playing Minecraft. Uh, we don't know. What have they lost that we could give them back? We don't know. They never had anything else uh, except a, a family where both parents work and, and the parents really are so driven by their, the needs of survival in the technological world that they, they really can't be fully there for the children. What, what are we going to give those children? We don't know yet, um, but we are we are learning some principles from the Aboriginal case, and uh, we got more learning to do. That's all I know. Wow! Wow! Geez. It's such yeah. a big, broad. Yeah, really. It's it's a big furry. It, like it's really not easy to <laughs> to, to to get any. And kind you've of, spent fifty years in to it. clutch. I feel like we're clutching at straws, like trying to figure out this one. But like, I guess you're a you're in your eighties now, so you've been you've been battling with these issues for 50 years in the last couple of days we've been digging into this so we're very fresh to it and i'm kind of going like you know what are like what are some of the kind of things like when you think of your grandkids or you think of 
you know, children growing up today, like, and you think of our societies now, like, like we've got kids, I've got an 11 year old and an eight year old and Steve's got 11, eight and five. And we're kind of going, okay. And anyone listening here is kind of going, wow, geez, this doesn't sound too good. Like, oh my God, like both, both the adults in my home work and we've got a kid and poor little Johnny, you know, how, how the heck are we going to make sure he has a sense of belonging? And how do we, how do we create this sense of belonging and usefulness and integration in society and so that addiction is less something. rampant? Um, I think I think you you gave a really nice example of Viktor Frankl and talking about in his book Man's Search for Meaning and just the importance of meaning giving purpose yeah. and helping us you know find a more a better version of ourselves. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's I think Victor, Victor Frankl is is extremely important in all this. As as are many people. There, I mean, there are lots of people thinking about this stuff. And Viktor Frankl is one. And, it, and it, I mean, what he showed, of course, is that you can live in a concentration camp on the very brink of death and still find meaning. Uh, and if you do, you're more likely to survive. But I mean, most people, of course, don't. Uh, you know, you, you can't do it by willpower alone. Some people can. Some people can can just pull themselves out of the the alienation or the dislocation. Some people can just pull themselves out of it by sheer brute force and strength, but most of us can't. We need, we need help and we need, and, and we need a society which makes it a lot easier to find meaning. And how we are going to construct that society, we don't know, um, but we know the problem. I mean, I think that this is what I think has been the progress in my lifetime is that and you, and this is why you guys make me very happy because you know, you know everything I know, um, and and you're thinking about it and you solve it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, oh, Bruce. That's the best I've heard. That's, that's brilliant. We solve it. Okay, okay. Well, I'll have a punt at it. Okay. Like, I think ultimately, as you said, it's down to belonging, it's down to usefulness, it's down to connection, and it's down to probably less competition and less isolation. So how do we set up our communities and our societies like that? Well, I guess it starts back to the family unit and going, okay, family units, how do we nurture our children? How do we get almost more a maternal, feminine, and I, maybe I can't even say that now, a more like we've lived in a patriarch for so many years and it's been very competitive and survival of the fittest. And we almost need to take on more of this female energy. And I, I see it in myself, in my own life over 20 years. I feel I'm a much more compassionate, empathetic human than I was 20 years ago. And maybe that's just age. But I'm kind of going, how do we get more of this energy within our families and our societies and less competition and more cooperation and more harmony and... I don't know how to give any practical examples other than I know we're starting a community farm because we've realized that part of belonging is being connected to the land. And now in, and an, in an age nowadays where f more than 50% of people live in society, in, in cities, which are concrete jungles, whereas we are human beings that were part of nature. And nowadays, most of us live separated from nature. So I guess a practical thing, which we've kind of done is kind of gone, okay, we need to get back to the soil. We need to get back to the land. We need to start growing our, like, even if you look at the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu, he has a little, one of the many little verses in that. I think it's the last one he talks about, or one of them he talks about um, 
happiness and purpose and meaning. He talks about growing your own food and having your hands in the soil and being busy with purposeful work and this type of thing. And it's almost like there's an absence of this now because so many of us have jobs that are just doing um, widgets. We're, like, we're looking for the quick hack. We're looking for the quick hack because you know, we're, we're just, yes. there's so much FOMO. Like I'm, I'm really just, I'm like a splatter gun here now having a punt at it. You're doing great, Dave. Thanks, Steve. Um, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, Bruce. Steve, your go. <laughs> How many points did I get? You guys both get A+. Plus. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're, doing, you're doing perfect. And, and we're talking here about a long-term problem. And of course, you know, community farms, we, we, we have a community garden here too, of course. And of course, we're part of it. And we live, I'd have to tell you this, I live on an island and we are encircled by whales, um, orcas, uh, the black and white ones. Wow. And they're endangered, of course. And so our children on this island are, are very, very much involved in whale conservation. And, and we do a lot of whale conservation projects and all of this is important and, and our children do pretty good. I mean, it's not that we don't have children who go bad. Of course we do, like everybody does. But most of our kids are doing, are doing pretty good and, we're, and we're, we're happy with it. And it's these kinds of things, these kind of homely in community projects that will get us out of it. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the, um, the tide comes up a little higher every day. Um, and at the same time, we are on the, we're skating on the edge of nuclear war in, in uh, Ukraine as we speak. Um, how we are going to make these community projects work within a world that is that is endangered itself the whole world is endangered how we're going to do that we don't know yet uh except that i mean all i know is that is that that we can recognize the problem and recognize the depth of the problem i think that's where we have gone so wrong in my lifetime is we tried to oversimplify our way out of this problem and say oh we've got an addiction problem sure it's just an addictive drug just get that sucker off the street we oversimplify our way out of problems. And, and what I hope we're doing now is we're we're recognizing the full gravity of the problem. <laughs> it's it's big, man. Wow. And um, it's, the, it's the whole we don't, it's... Have, we don't have the answer. And and you you uh, you can interview as many people as you want, but but you will not find the 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 full answer. It's 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 gonna it's a project of generations and uh, we're we're in it. Wow. I like the frankness. I like the honesty. I yeah, like it's very the, frank. Crap. I, and I like the passing of responsibility. It's your problem. You guys got to do it. I like that. <laughs> well, of I think that's brilliant. I think I, I, I think that's very relevant to anyone listening. It's oh, like, we we all just got past the mantle by Bruce. Right. Here we go. Yeah. Showtime, Steve. <laughs> Yeah, well, okay. I say, I say that that red ribbon there is a symbol. That orange ribbon is a symbol, Steve, of, of your new responsibility. And uh, don't expect to succeed in a single lifetime. That's all. 
But I will do my best, Bruce. I promise. I will carry this man before. <laughs> I will. And it sounds I like, but, but the irony is that we, so we started off talking about it. We started talking about substances and addiction and like really in the micro and really we've come right back in, in the biggest sense of the macro and gone, okay, as humans, it seems like at the root of it, like so many of us are missing out in meaning and purpose and that sense of belonging. And as a result, modern culture and society is not working for so many of us. And it's so easy to see, like you walk down the street and you can see, you know, as you say, poverty of the spirits, you can see, or Gabor Mate says, hungry ghosts or whatever, where it's the same kind of metaphors for it's not working for so many of us. And does the whole house of cards have to fall down before we kind of go start building it back up or start doing things differently? I don't know. And as you said, but I'm carrying the mantle now and we're going to take responsibility, (laughs) Bruce. Things are going to change around here, Bruce. We've got a plan. (laughs) It's like a five phase strategic plan with goals and objectives. No, that was a joke. No. Thank I you. don't have any plan. <laughs> well, you two cadets are, are are right at the top of the class. <laughs> and, uh, I'm wishing you good luck, but it's a you know we're all we're all in this together. That's uh, I don't think there's a there's a more optimistic solution than that, or a more optimistic resolution of these issues than that. It's, it's we're in a project that that. Um, may or may not succeed. And we hope like hell it does because uh, be ashamed to lose all these grandchildren. I, uh, you know, I, I can tell you something about addiction, which is people get addicted to all kinds of things. And when you're my age, you tend to get addicted to grandchildren. And I, I look at my grandchildren and I cry. I think, well, you know, what is going to happen to these kids? Um, that's that's the project, cadets. So I wish. Well. <laughs> I wow. Okay. Now I you've added relate, a whole emotional even, element. Even my kids, even just just the my, the connection with my own sense of emotion is just so like it just feels like my heart is so filled with love for them. And I imagine with grandchildren, it even kind of compounds. You know, it, it compounds further that there's just this massive just openness. Yeah. I have to tell you, that's the grandchildren adventure is even, well, it's at least as as amazing as the children adventure of of what your heart will will say to you and when you have grandchildren. It's it's you know what's strange to me is that is that we advertise different stages of of life. For example, we advertise romantic love. You know, you fall in love and you'll have, you know, all the the orchestra will play and everything will be rainbows. And we advertise having a baby, but we don't advertise grandparenting. Um, But I can tell you absolutely that grandparenting is is as thrilling as as any of the other stages of life. And you have that to look forward to, cadets. (laughs) <laughs> well, I guess we better carry the mantle well, like because you know, there's Bruce, nothing guaranteed in this you world. Really are. I've really enjoyed this conversation. That was, as we say in Ireland, that was great crack. Really was, and crack, crack, crack meaning the drug, not crack meaning um, crack cooking. the Irish word for fun. For for what? For fun? Yeah, fun, yeah. yeah. It's an it's an what? Irish word, C or A I C, and it means fun. So people say that was great crack, and they're not talking about crack cocaine. They're talking about that was fun. Like it's the native Irish word. So. So yeah, now we had well, a laugh. That you. was really good. Refreshing. That was great. 
That was great crack on this end too. And thank you very much, gentlemen. And we better get to and work, Bruce. We have a lot of we have a lot of yeah. problems to solve. <laughs> yeah. And me too. Yeah. Well, Brilliant. enjoy your grand grandparenting because that sounds like very fulfilling work. Well, that's that's cool too. Yeah. Good luck, man. Thanks, Bruce. Cheers, Bruce. Thanks, Thanks Mind yourself. Thanks, bye. Thanks for taking bye. the time. Bye. 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 That was great. That really was like, particularly the end. I loved how refreshing. I love being called the cadet by Bruce. So that was fabulous. Yeah. And I love the mantle. I love the fact that he didn't just like modern day society. We like to the reductionist perspective, reduce things down. Here's the five tips to be a successful person. He just said, you know, the answer is that we don't know the answer. And then we got to work it's through gonna it. Take, and he even said it's going to take Generation. multiple generations. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's not empowering. But in a sense, it kind of felt uniting and in his whole kind of conversation where where he boiled it back down to belonging is really at the core of it i certainly felt okay well and i guess togetherness. i guess we're in this together and there's multiple issues coming at us as he said coming at us <laughs> <laughs> that was good pronunciation <laughs> did you lose your train of thought i thought it was fun <laughs> you're just like a laughing fool now <laughs> a laughing kind of hopefully it makes someone else feel good um, <laughs> Anyway, I was being serious. I was being serious. <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> and I hope you enjoy our podcast because we really do. Um, so, yeah, if you like this, please share it on Instagram stories and we'll reshare it because we really do want to get this message out to as many people as we can. Particularly the idea, like his main message being about like, so much of and like it's a common theme across that, this podcast that, that we talk about no no the oh. common theme about belonging theme. and connection <laughs> don't get me going again here <laughs> the common theme Stephen about connection and about belonging about how important it is to our basic human existence and I guess that's a common theme that keeps coming up time again and was, meaning I, I like that you know meaning yeah maybe we should talk to more people about like meaning significance how do we find a sense of purpose it was always my granny said I think purpose is a great yeah keep to have a sense of purpose in how you live yeah there we That's go true wealth anyway right we better go now yeah so, our book is available pre-order on another note uh link is down below if you search in google or on whatever browser you use i use DuckDuckGo. aren't you great does that mean you're better than well is that it i sense the touch of superiority there sorry i wasn't dignified there uh anyway go into the internet search your browser of choice and search the happy <laughs> but if you want to be as good as steven type use duck duck go uh, anyway uh thanks for joining us and sorry we were a bit lucid there bye see you bye 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 bye